Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England, possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last Ice Age to the present day. Let the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far. Once people started to settle in the valley, they farmed, forged metal, found new ways to manage themselves and form groups, which others in a far distant empire called tribes. What the locals didn't realise was that the distant empire was getting closer all the time and would leave a permanent mark. The period of Roman history is so extensive, it's difficult to know exactly where to start and exactly where to finish and where well, to put the bits in that are important. So it's like, where do we start? Where do we start? I'm basically going to go with what we represent in the Legion, which is quite a limited period of Roman history, but we're like 120-ish. I represent a member of the Sixth Victrix Ibarakum, so my Roman name is Marcus Minucius Mudenus. But in the 21st century, He's known as Dave Granger. And we haven't just made that up. They are actually members of the Sixth Legion who were here in York and the surrounding area. We know that because we've got gravestones of all the lots of the soldiers that were here. So my Roman character, if you like, was a member of the Sixth Legion and a pilot, so kind of navigated the river on a boat. So we're the local Roman reenactment group. There are a number existing in, in Britain today. Um, and we usually celebrate various festivals during different times of the year. In fact, in July, we're very busy. We've got three, three festivals each weekend in July. Uh, one in here, in the Museum Gardens, and then the following weekend in, uh, in Petuaria, in Brough, and then the weekend after that in Moulton, whose Roman name I can't remember. <laughs> we all have our own armour and all our, all our own uh, kit. I wear um, a type of armour called squamata, so it's made up of tiny scales, like fish scales. Uh, it's all made to measure and it all costs a fortune. <laughs> the Sixth Legion weren't the first people here, were they? Not the first Roman Legion here, no. I realised that it was the ninth that turned That's up. right, yeah, yeah. The Sixth Victrix were the second Roman army to occupy Ibaracum, as they called it. In previous conversations, we got up to a bunch of heavily armed men turning up in a place that wasn't a city yet because they're actually going to be the guys that found this city. So who were the guys who turned up and why were they here? Um, so the Roman invasion of Britain has many parts. It wasn't just one occurrence. It, it happened on a number of different occasions and in about 70-ish AD. The invasion had begun some years before that and they basically conquered the south, passed the Thames and made their way north until they reached modern-day Brough, which is the Roman name, which was Petraria. And they crossed the Humber around about that place and then navigated up the Ouse and the Humber from there to here. And that was the ninth legion, as you said, who came to this kind of natural defence because there's two rivers built a fortress here which was originally made out of wood then 
we don't know exactly what year but sometime around about 100 AD our legion the sixth victrix turned up uh, and we stayed here for quite some period of time and built Hadrian's Wall in about 122. Quite a lot of engineering going on. Yeah and I think from a local's perspective what people were here would have just been small villages, subsistence farming, no particular community or there's certainly no place that you might call a town or a city. I don't think it would have been a shock to the locals because for the previous hundred years or so they were aware of the Roman existence and the Roman occupation. Trade had been well established since sort of 40-ish AD onwards. Um, so there were lots of trade routes already there, certainly in southern Britain, um, between southern Britain and France or Gaul. Archaeological evidence of amphorae, big clay pots that they brought wine across in and so on. So certainly the elite or the, the tribal leaders would probably have welcomed the Romans with open arms because they were able to get things that they couldn't get Britain because they could trade with the Romans and, and live quite a nice lifestyle. I think the kind of the Roman attitude was so long as you're happy to join us and do what we say and pay your taxes then we'll kind of leave you alone and we'll let you rule your tribes and that was certainly true for the Brigantes that Queen Cartamandua decided that it was better to assimilate with the Romans than uh, then face the consequences if you didn't. Now the reason why the ninth turned up was a bit of a soap opera I understand. Queen Cartamandua had turned over one of the major rebel leaders Caractacus to the Romans. She fell out with her husband basically. I don't think he was quite so keen <laughs> as she was uh, but I think she saw the benefit. Yeah he wasn't keen he rebelled and also she married his second-in-command. Chariot driver, I think it was, yeah. I think that's fair to say that might have caused a split amongst the leadership. <laughs> I'm sure it did, but um, it, it, it was quite common that lots of the, the tribal leaders, you know, did kind of accept the invasion as being probably a positive thing for them because, I mean, obviously, the, the alternative was that these heavily armed and well-organised and disciplined troops would... You know, make their mark in a more violent way so it was better for them I think to say right look we know that you're going to bring infrastructure roads sewers and of course the Romans sort of left them alone in a sense that they could the Roman religion and culture wasn't in such a way that, that they enforced it on others it's just like if you've got your own ways of living and your own religions we're happy for you to stick with that so long as you pay your taxes to the Roman generals and the, and the leadership and I think they were quite clever because they like charge different tribes different amounts of money so that they could kind of play each tribe off against each other as well so it wasn't as though it was a flat tax rate for everybody it depended on how much area that particular tribe was in control of this wasn't a simple process of the romans turned up everything changed they plonked a fort down and everyone changed immediately to a new new social and economic circumstance I'm Steve Roscombs, I work in the archaeology department at the University of York but I've always been interested in Roman urbanism and the interaction between Rome and the peoples that it encountered. I'm presently writing up work at the Roman fort at Moulton and then in York itself, so Heslington East in particular, which is the, where the university expansion was. All the evidence that we have in York and also across this whole region, particularly where it's very accessible up on the walls, 
is that it actually took a long time for Romans to impose their authority on the area. And perhaps more importantly, in the process of imposing that, they themselves were changed. So if we see, if we look in the early Roman period, I mean, the work that we've done at Heslington East is really quite interesting in this respect, that the landscape divisions there, we're only talking about a region which is half an hour's walk from the centre of York, so it's not far away, it's intervisible with the fortress, but the land didn't change. The, the ditches that they carried on digging out, the roundhouses, people were living in, were unchanged for, for many decades and perhaps perhaps 100, 150 years after there was a Roman fortress on their doorstep. They did, however, begin to have new material culture, more pottery types, new pottery types circulating amongst them. So they were eating differently. Some of them, at least, were eating off Romanized tableware imported from elsewhere, but they were still living in that, that Iron Age way. Within a generation or two, they were using imported samianware, so-called terra sigillata, which is like a, a glossy red um, tableware that is imported from Gaul. And so that was arriving at that particular site. And then maybe by a hundred years after the, the fortress had been built, they were beginning to process their food. So we see the, the first signs of mortaria, new, more ways, new ways of grinding material arriving. So some form of consumption changes quite quickly, and then processing of foods change after that. But it's not there until the end of the second century CE, that sort of period. So, you know, a, a long time after, 150 years after the Romans, 120 years, depending on exactly when they arrived, that's another story, that you're seeing uh, a real change to that landscape. It's divided up in a new way in the late Roman period. I think it's important to stress, therefore, that, that it wasn't just an automatic, simple process. It wasn't just instant togas and villas. Absolutely and not. Absolutely not, no. <laughs> In fact, uh, there's good evidence to suggest, as I say, that although material culture circulated there, pottery in particular, the actual mechanics of how they worked those landscapes didn't really change. The big mechanical milling that we see is a product there of the late Roman period. So they are still using those same hand mills, presumably those individual households in their roundhouses are still using those, although you would see material on their tables or whatever in those roundhouses, which would have looked familiar to a Roman soldier from another part of the empire. So it wouldn't have been unrecognisable. But the fundamentals of how they're working is not simply aligned with you know, a change of the armies arrived and everything changes. And so the ownership of the land and the way it's managed doesn't change for 150, 200 yeah, years? but when it does change, I mean, this is only an individual site. Whether it stands for other areas of the landscape is an entirely open question. But nonetheless, we do have this evidence that sometime in the 3rd century CE, about 150 years after the Romans arrived, by about that time, then we do see major changes. We do see roads. A road is laid out on that site. Um, droveways are created, new paddocks. So that's the point at which those people are dispossessed of their land and it's reorganised in a way which it hadn't been um, up until that point. So it's not that there's no change, it's long deferred. And no doubt it would have been contested. And we see a similar picture, actually, but up on the walls we see continuity through much of the early Roman period, but perhaps in the 3rd century is a bit of a watershed. 
and that's the first time in which imperial power may have established itself up there. So from near to York to wherever it is, you know, 40 kilometres away, um, then we're seeing this big change. I think the Romans weren't here out of the kindness of their hearts, really. There was a taxation system. There was coinage circulating. They would have extracted surplus from these rural landscapes through that taxation system. And so they're not completely inured from Roman influence. It's just that the, the, the fundamental productivity of the landscape doesn't really change. So insofar as they're paying their taxes, they're paying them on the basis of agricultural surpluses generated in, in a place which is fundamentally organised in the same way as before the Romans arrived. We talk about the Romans, hmm. and there's a place called Rome. <laughs> yeah. Were they people from Latium? which I think is the region around Rome, who all turned up, or where did they come from? <laughs> Not in the least. I mean, the Roman army, this is a character of the Roman Empire altogether. That itself is also changing. So the centre of gravity of Rome, these, these soldiers, um, some of them, no doubt, were from Rome and were even more from Italy, but a lot of them are auxiliaries drawn from elsewhere in the empire. So you've got, you know, troublemakers in this part of the empire, you sweep them up in the army and you plonk them down in the north of Britain and they owe their allegiance to the army, but they're not from Rome. And so there's, there's a sense in which where they see their identities as being Rome begins to change. And also, like, where is the centre of power of, of the Roman Empire in, in the third century? It's, it's in North Africa, it's not in Italy anymore. In the second century, it's probably more socially and economically in Spain. You only have to look at where do the emperors come from. You know, in the first century, they come from Italy. By the, by the second century, they're coming from Spain. By the third century, Septimus Severus, who was owned up in York, he's from North Africa. So increasingly, therefore, the roots of imperial authority are not Roman, in a sense. They are dispersed in interesting ways. The centre of gravity of Rome is changing. So Rome's a concept. There's still a sense of belonging to a thing called the Roman Empire. I mean, even that, you know, you might question. Like, we talk about the Roman army. They didn't. They talked about Roman armies, plural. So there's a whole issue there about how much military authority was maintained and, and where it owed its allegiances to. And then you see that in the political shenanigans of the Roman world, really, the, the emperors that are deposed and the pivotal role of the army in that process. So for somewhere like York, where are the people coming from to settle? They're certainly widely dispersed. I mean, now we're, we've got more advanced scientific techniques. We're beginning to see that there were people arriving in York from far and wide, some from uh, North African context, some from Eastern European context, so quite a hodgepodge. But I don't think anyone believes that, that, that anything other than the vast majority of people who were in Roman York were from the immediate vicinity, notwithstanding the fact that there are certainly a, a significant minority who are coming from much further afield. And those proportions are much debated because we're only really now able to recognise through, you know, genetic work and such like, about that diversity. I mean, the classic case is the so-called bangle lady in, in display in the Yorkshire Museum, um, who is someone who was discovered in fairly rudimentary um, excavations um, with the development of the railways in the 19th century. And it was assumed that she was Roman and she was from the core of empire. In fact, she was 
almost certainly from North Africa and, and may or may not have had a, a black skin. And so this woman, who is clearly a part of the Roman elite, she's an aristocratic elite woman, given the nature of her burial and so forth, she came from that context. So there were certainly people like that around, or the, 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 one, the examples that we have of the decapitated burials out along another part of, of York. Um, they're also show origins, some of them, which are from elsewhere. So the majority of population, probably from the immediate region, but with a few long-distance exotic imports along the way. So the ninth turn-up... They build a wooden barrack. First thing you do is build a defensible... Yes, yeah, so on the way here, the soldiers that were part of the engineering group built a road, several roads, I mean, by 150, there was an estimated 8,000 miles of roads built in Britain alone um, so that was the kind of first thing they needed to be able to get equipment and everything to where it needed to be so they build the roads. Which leads me on to my next question, what <laughs> was life like in Rome? You have these guys, we call them Roman, were they all from Rome, the city itself? Very much not and certainly not at the period that we represent the sort of early second century. There would be people from all over modern Europe assimilated into the Roman army but it was a pretty good job in the sense that you got well paid lots of hard work so you know marching with what's equivalent to a modern day marines weight of kit but they would march 20-ish miles Roman miles and then at the end of the day they may have a battle to fight but they certainly had stuff to do in terms of either pitching tents if it was a, a temporary barracks or you know finding food making fires doing all the usual campcraft bushcraft activities that, that went with it building roads were they all fighting then? um the sort of smallest group was called a contabernia in the in the roman army and that, that existed of eight soldiers and you did everything together so you slept together ate together fought together in a, in a small group um, the Roman army was built up into sections, so for the Contabernia you'd have 10 of those making a sentry, so not 100 as we might think, but 80 soldiers in a sentry. And then you'd keep building the, the, the sentries up, you'd have six probably uh, sentries in a cohort, and then 10 cohorts make up a whole legion, except the first cohort is double the size of all the others, because it's made of really experienced soldiers and, and that cohort would have less centurions in, in charge than, than all of the other cohorts would have. So they weren't all soldiers, there was a kind of supply chain that went with it so you had quite a lot of auxiliaries, probably the same again in numbers as to them that you had in soldiers and they were responsible for all sorts of other things so making sure that the, the routes to supply the army were organised, making sure that there was enough food, making sure that you had things in place when they were needed, chopping down trees and, and all that kind of thing. So it was a, a very well organised unit, but not all soldiers. A lot of people, yeah. So roughly how many? Well, the, the size of a legion varies quite a lot, depending on what period of Roman history we're looking at, but around about 5,000. When they turned up here in 71, they probably had about 5,000 soldiers. And I think from the local perspective, it's a bit difficult to imagine today, but if you can if you can imagine having ranks of soldiers all looking the same, all dressed the same, all obeying commands that were essentially not shouted commands but, but given by whistle, and they would have made quite a bit of a noise because they're stomping along the ground and crunching the, the ground as they go along with their studded boots and 
It had lots of metal, so that all made a clunking and clanking noise. But, you know, that was totally contrary to what like, the local Celts might have experienced before in terms of any battles between other tribes, because they were not organised or disciplined, and it was a, a lot of shouting <laughs> and noise, whereas the, the Roman legion, other than the commands that were given by the, the centurions, the rest of the soldiers were fairly quiet, probably didn't say anything but they made a lot of noise when they turned up all at once. And so we've got this idea that they're in serried rank, yeah. shields together, quite a tough nut to crack, and with swords that poke out between the individual shields and stab people. That's right, yeah. Quite um, a short sword, but designed not for slashing, but for stabbing. That would have been something completely against what the locals were used to. It w they, yeah, it certainly would have been not something they would have experienced before. They wouldn't have seen such a disciplined force turning up and kind of doing as they were told. And in a battle, they had a really good structure to keep the front line fresh. So every few minutes, they would rotate those lines of soldiers so that there was always a fresh arms and legs at the front of the line. And, and those just got rotated backwards throughout. And you'd have, obviously, the centurions leading from the front but a lot of those had quite a short life expectancy because they didn't have a shield they were quite obvious their crests were side to side um, their armor tended to be not quite so tough as some of the other soldiers could have been leather you know if you're gonna attack somebody you take out the guy who's giving out all the orders and then at the back of that rank of maybe about 80 soldiers you'd have a somebody like me, I represent an optio, kind of second in command, and I carry a big stick, and that big stick's called a hastile. The idea was that I would push the soldiers forward from the back, and then they rotate at the front. So they're very well trained, well drilled. And conquered most of Europe, <laughs> and <laughs> North Africa. So that level of organisation, basically probably the largest body of men that the local people will have ever seen, I would have thought. I would say so, yeah, I mean, the local tribes i guess if they're, they're fighting amongst other tribes then would be grab whatever weapon you can and let's go and fight but no kind of discipline or structure or, or organization and that's what the romans were very good at was organizing and, and being you know well disciplined in, not just in the in the army but in terms of building the roads and the infrastructure and the architecture they had proper sewers they had baths they had immense buildings that were made of marble and fancy mosaics and, and all the rest of it which would have been a totally brand new site to people in Britain, at, you know, at, at that period. And then even when the Romans left 400, 410, a lot of it all got dismantled and, and they went back to living in straw huts and open sewers running down the street. But one of the reasons they left was because it's hard to hold on to an empire. The locals didn't particularly welcome them with open arms all the time, did they? No, I mean, I think it would have been a varied picture because Obviously, like today, if an invading force came here, then they, I'm sure wouldn't be welcomed with open arms um, by most people. But you know, the arrival of the Romans in what became York, it would have been a mixed picture. Some, a lot of people, I think, would have been hesitant or resistant. But then hearing the sounds and seeing the sights of the army turning up, it'd be difficult for the locals to do anything about it, essentially, because they, either they accepted that this is what's going to happen or they you know, ended up on the end of a, a sword or a spear. And, of course, you know, the, the benefits of the Romans being here in lots of ways outweighed the, the negatives as well. Um, 
yeah, not all of them, but I think a lot of them did. And in terms of cultural impact, it's like throwing a rock into a pond, isn't it? There's a big splash, and you can say that York is the big splash, the urban centre is a big military base. Yeah, centre of the north, certainly. And there are ripples, but the ripples get less the further you go from that particular base. I mean, other Roman bases are available. That's right, yeah. There were lots of Roman cities uh, you know, around the country, but as you say, the further away you get, the further north you get, the less impact it seems to have had. So we get up to Hadrian's Wall and then, although I think that was essentially established as a trade barrier, so if you cross from one side to the other, you have to pay a toll or a tax. Later on than 120, when Antonine, Emperor Antonine turned up, he built another wall, although it wasn't as extensive or as, as, as mighty as Hadrian's Wall, um, further north, across like Glasgow to Edinburgh as it, as it is now. That then got disbanded and, and then they moved back down to Hadrian's Wall, so it kind of did mark the extent of the Roman Empire. It's too difficult really after that to, to try and do anything more and so I don't think the Romans thought that it was there was any benefit. Although there are some Roman forts further north even as far as Aberdeen but um, those ripples are quite small at that point. Every Roman settlement, town, city were essentially built to the same blueprint so all of the buildings and all of the roads are all in the same place and they would have all had a Colosseum if you like or an amphitheatre of some sort We've just never found the one in York. I think they're hoping to, aren't they? Okay, returning to the sick, we've now got an established Roman city. Have you got any clue why they called it Ibaraka? Uh, I'm not sure of the heritage of the word, but it describes the area of the land that they found when they got here, so it's, it means place with the yew trees grow. So, as I said before, there's a two natural defensive barriers with the rivers, and then there would have been a lot of trees, a lot of yew trees here at the time. So I think that's where the word comes from. And then obviously they, they could use the wood from the trees for, for all sorts of building purposes as well. When they built the base, well, they need to put 5,000 troops in a particular perimeter. It's pretty massive. Yeah, it was about 50 acres. So starting from here in the museum gardens, there's the southwestern tower, which is the multangular tower. Yeah. Just on that point, if you go and look at the stone inscription, it says the Northwestern Tower, and I'm thinking, hang about, that doesn't seem right. No, it's, the inscriptions are often not right. <laughs> and there are some levels, obviously a lot of it is, is built on top of the original Roman structure. So the stones that you see today on the Multangular Tower and the, the rest of the bits of the walls that you can see are medieval, but the, some of it at least is built on, in the same position as the original Roman fortress would have been. There's a line of red brick isn't there? Yeah, that's the Roman brick. So from that corner, if you imagine it as a 90 degree corner of two walls, the left hand wall running north essentially goes behind the back of what's now Gillygate uh, and again there's a medieval bit of wall that you can walk along there and then it turns up Lord Mayor's Walk and now part way along there there would have been a, a section of Roman wall running to the opposite corner, the southeast corner, which is or was um, essentially outside of the Roman Bath pub, now a little bit further into Parliament Street than, than where it is. 
So the bathhouse that exists under that pub was a, a military bathhouse, not for civilians. Got one of those classic Roman shared toilets that you see on postcards. There's no evidence of it there. There will be. Um, they, they have a hypercore system that you can see various different temperatures of, of baths, so a hot bath, a cold bath, and they've got part of the furnace that would have did the air under the floor. So they knew how to look after their troops. It was all fairly sophisticated. Absolutely. And for anyone listening to this who wants to get their bearings in York, York Minster is right in the middle of the old Roman fortress. Although they rotated the building, so the Principia would have faced the river, and then they turned the, the church around when they built the Minster so that it faced east-west instead of how it would have done in the Roman times. Some parts um, underneath the Minster in the, in the crypt, you, I think you'd go and have a wander around there. I don't know if it's part of the normal entry fee to the Minster or you might have to pay a bit extra, but you, you can still see. So we've got the military base on the north side of the river. That's right. Where are all the civilians? So the square that I mentioned earlier was St Helen's Square. The road that leads between there and the Minster is today is called Stonegate but was a, a Roman road. It's in the same position as the, as the Pretoria, the Via Pretoria, which led from the main headquarters, the Principia, down to the river. Where the mansion house is now, just to the right of that, there's a, a, like a path that goes down to the river. That's where the original Roman bridge would have been to the civilian settlement on the south side of the river, where the old Norwich Union building is now, and where they're planning to build the new Roman museum on Lugia Street. So once they do the archaeology from there, I'm sure they're going to find loads and loads of civilian artefacts um, because that's where the Vici was on the other side of the river to the military barracks. Who would be living there? So that would have been a lot of the auxiliary part of the army that we talked about before, not the actual soldiers, but those that were responsible for administration and for agriculture, making sure that everybody had you know, what they needed and their families. The Roman soldiers themselves um, weren't allowed to marry um, unless they were a, a, a particular rank of officer and it did change from various different parts of, of Roman history. Um, so there would have been some family homes for some of the officers outside of the barracks as well. It would have probably been equivalent size to the, to the military barracks, it may have even been slightly bigger. And if you've got an army that needs supply, Presumably there's also a lot of local craftsmen and suppliers. People coming in to, to settle around the civilian area knowing that they could make money out of the army because they could sell them things and grow crops and build stuff and help. Certainly worthwhile to be kind of hanging around with the army so to speak because you could make a quite good living from uh, trading with them. So Ibarakum has become very <laughs> urbanised. It's still got the big military fort, it's got the big civilian settlement on the other side of the river. How long does that go on for? If we look at the date of the arrival of the 9th, which they say is 71, 72, although there's no specific date that I can find about the arrival of, this, of our legion, the 6th Victrix, would have been a, probably about 90-ish. Now we do know that the 6th were at least partly responsible for building parts of Hadrian's Wall. That was in 122, or at least it was started in 122. And then the, the, the Sixth Victrix stayed here until the Romans left Britain in 410. So they were here for 400 years. 
this if you look back that's longer than the British were in India. Absolutely yeah. What's interesting about the late Roman change though is it's not just the natives are changed into Romans but the Romans themselves are changing so for example I was talking earlier about imported pottery which would have been familiar to you know from the continent which would have been familiar to Rome by the third century and in, especially in the fourth century the pottery that, that the Romans are getting in the fortress here uh, over the way is um, is made within this region it, some of it in the third century it's often made within Britain and by the fourth century it isn't even made elsewhere in the province it's made just up the road so what gave Roman soldiers their sense of identity in the fourth century isn't imported terra sigillata from massive kilns in Gaul it's actually stuff that's made at Cranbeck halfway between York and, and Moulton so that's that's their good quality tablewares and if we look at the distribution of that material it's quite interesting it's it's actually solely north of the Humber it gets all the way up to the west end of of Hadrian's Wall which is not easy to to reach by the means of uh, that were available transport mechanisms but it doesn't actually get south of the Humber so there's a kind of regional identity here so the degree to which these Roman soldiers see themselves is aligned with Rome the core of empire or still even how, how much they see them aligned as part of Britain is perhaps a moot point so we're seeing then Roman power being regionalized and localized over time and that makes sense because by this point you're many centuries away from being an invading force you've been settled in this province for a long time they're allowed to officially marry by this point so there's intermarriage with local women so the whole of the social context and the social fabric of the relationship between soldier and civilian is fundamentally shifted by this time yes it's still in theory aligned with Roman imperial authority but increasingly the archaeology tells us they see their actual identities in relationship to what was happening within this region and not only within Britain but within the area of north of the Humber so you know Yorkshire and, and, and Lancashire and of course that you know you're looking at several generations of soldiers some of whom would be retired at the end of the service and then part of the deal about being in the army other than you got a good pension that you were allowed you know then to take a wife and to have plot of land that you could then use for, for yourself so over that period of time that's how the people around here were Romanized if you like because they you know, married retired soldiers. So you could get potentially successive generations of military families over those hundreds of years and then when the legions go those people are probably still here and then have to adapt to a new way of life and there's probably new people that have been coming into the empire that would be as you say auxiliaries some of them from, from northern Europe. I mean just because the Roman legions left doesn't mean that Rome left or the Roman Empire left Britain at all because there would have still been generals or ex-generals from the army who were, who were here uh, and, and there is some evidence to say that they you know had their own little bands of soldiers that they used to protect their own little towns or areas of the country so 
doesn't mean that everything stopped and you know they all disappeared back to Italy. There were lots of Romans still here for hundreds of years. What I've also heard is that it would have been an economic boost because you weren't paying your taxes. That's right. So you didn't have to pay the tax anymore, although I think some of the generals tried to insist that they were supported a little bit like in modern day landowners might have people paying rent on farms on their land and so on um, today. You can never escape taxes. But as the legions leave and the strong men take over the farmland, what happens to the city of Ibarakum? That's where our tale becomes a little murky. Thanks to Marcus Minocius Medanus, otherwise known as Dave Granger of Legio Sixth Victrix. This year they're involved in the Ibarakum Roman Festival on July the 8th and 9th, the Petuaria, that's Bruff, Roman Festival on July the 15th, and Malton Roman Festival, July the 23rd. Thanks also to Steve Roscombs of York University's Archaeology Department. Examples of York's Roman history can be found at the Yorkshire Museum in the city. Further information and links can be found in our show notes on the podcast website. The Spirit of York is embodied by Alison Willis, and the programme was produced and presented by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North. If you enjoyed the show, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City. We hope you'll join us next time.